everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand-selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. This takes us to the next principle, which is the principle of faith in nature. And I'll start again by reading an excerpt from Ray Dalio's Principles. He writes, whenever I observe something in nature that I or mankind think is wrong, I assume that I'm wrong and try to figure out why what nature is doing makes sense. So this is a good position to start from when dealing with reality that you, it's a position of humility, right? That if something functions well in nature, there's probably a reason behind it that you don't understand. So you should think, at least think twice or be slow to try and intervene with a naturally ordered system um, because there are often, it's very easy to create unintended consequences uh, when you mess with things that you don't understand, let's say. So now when I look and what we'll we'll start to describe gold as kind of a natural money here. And we'll say that, you know, similar to the mostly uncompromising rules that govern gold, like we said, chemistry and physics, they don't really change. Um, They, as a result of these laws of nature, gold had certain properties that made it uh, fit for purpose of being money effectively. chief among them were that it was hard to change, difficult to change the rules, can't change the physics, can't change the chemistry, can't inflate the supply, etc. So similar to that, this open source analog technology we call gold, the rules of Bitcoin are founded in the absolutely uncompromising laws of mathematics. And mathematics is nature's fundamental language. Um, So again, it was the relative uncompromising rules of gold that made it a good money. And I think one way of looking at this in comparison to Bitcoin is Bitcoin has absolutely uncompromising rules. So it it takes gold kind of a step further. Um, And in in the sense of aligning with nature, 
uh, again, if we're using the, the analogy of, of money as time or energy, we wanted something that was of as fixed of a supply as, as time or energy itself. And that's what gold approximated. And that's what Bitcoin effectively perfects. Um, so in this sense, you, we have Bitcoin's kind of a fusion of two of these, these universal languages. Um, obviously, mathematics, very important. Um, I, I wrote about this in, in the numbers here on Bitcoin, how the invention of calculus, which, was, uh, which came after the invention of zero, is basically essential to all modern sciences. So all the miracles of modernity are due to calculus. Um, so suffice it to say, mathematics, very important, very much a universal language. And then obviously, money is another universal language humans have used uh, basically ever since we've been trading. It's just the most marketable asset in a marketable market economy. And Bitcoin is, in this strange and interesting way, kind of a fusion between these two universal languages. It's the first money that is uh, based in pure mathematics, pure digital information, if you will. Um, that is the, the secret sauce to software, really. But it's, it's interestingly aligned the software dimension with this rooting in reality through proof-of-work mining and then this incentive system that, that creates a, a consensus around, around Bitcoin as, as kind of like a game theoretic optimal money. And so, as we've talked a lot about in going through this letter, gold was effectively the king of, of natural monies, right? It's free market money. It's consensually accepted, not coerced. It arose to dominance as a result of a free market process. And these free market processes are themselves operations of nature, actually. This is the consensual self-organization of humanity across history. That's what a free market is. Um, fiat currencies, as we've described, on the other hand, they're artificial, right? They don't, they never emerge on the free market. They always uh, require coercion to come into existence. Um, and they require, they require, uh, this artifice to uphold their existence, to make them sustainable artifice, like legal tender laws, capital controls, um, different confiscatory actions by governments and a whole host of other anti-competitive restrictions in the market for money, right? Shutting down competitors, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, outlawing private gold ownership as they did in 1933. There's just, we could go on and on about um, all the manipulation and artifice that's necessary to keep fiat currency sustainable as a technology. So, whereas free markets represent this natural mode of human self-organization that's converting the pursuit, <clears throat> the individual pursuit of self-interest, it's converting it into improvement of society's interests, actually, uh, in the form of lower prices, higher standards of living, innovation. Free markets create this spontaneous order that has persisted to a greater or lesser extent ever since we started trading. Um, they, they're basically transmuting, greed might be too strong of a word, but again, self-interest. They're, they're converting or transmuting self-interest into higher productivity lower prices, and a stream of new and innovative ideas. 
Um, so long as the institution of private property is upheld, then all of our competitive energies, right, these the self-interested pursuit that we're sort of uh, imbued with as Darwinian actors, we channel all of that energy into the process of capitalism, right, actually trying to compete with one another in the marketplace rather than compete with one another in a theater of war or violence, for instance. And so I have to ask Ray then, what excuse could there possibly be for tolerating anything less than a free market for money? Um, and as Ray has written, he writes, remember that most people will pretend to operate in your interests while operating in their own, unquote. And so if you take that as kind of a premise, why would you ever tolerate uh, an unfree market that actually enables people to pretend to operate in your interests while they actually operate in their own? Whereas a free market actually checks that checks and channels the self-interest of the individual into something productive rather than something extractive. So, you know, that's what, when we look at the private owners or the private shareholders of central banks, that's really what they've been doing successfully for over a century is operating in their own self-interest while pretending to be operating in the interest of the public. Exactly what Ray said. Um, and they do this under the aegis of government-enforced monopolies, as we've described, legal monopolies. And the, this artifice that enriches insiders necessarily, because it's a monopoly, comes at the expense of outsiders or users. And so, in this sense, I consider central banking to be, I think it is actually, fully the most successful con artistry in human history. Um, this, I guess, preying on people's ignorance of money, you're able to introduce a concept as asinine as inflation, as if it's something healthy and good for people. And I guess it, you can get away with it because there is this kind of optical illusion of nominal prices going up as you print money. So if I hold assets in an inflationary regime, I look richer on paper. You know, you see the nominal dollars going up in your, your equities portfolio or, or your real estate. But what you don't see, and this is what economics ultimately is, is the science of unseen consequences. What you don't see is the, the diminishment of your purchasing power in dollars. And that's the scam right there. It's this you know, everything's good, numbers going up, you're getting richer for doing nothing, but the reality is you're having purchasing power sucked out um, of the dollars that you're getting more of. So it's a deception, right? And deceptions are inherently energy inefficient. Um, as, you know, if you've ever told a lie and then someone's called you on the lie, you know, you've got to spin up another lie to support the original lie and so on and so forth, right? And so it's, um, to use kind of a Bitcoin analogy, it's like creating a little fork of reality. And then you have to defend that fork. You have to maintain it. And it just it's just energy inefficient, right? When you could just tell the truth. Um, I forget who has that quote. Those who tell the truth don't have to remember anything, something like that. So... 
And to bring this back to nature, you know, nature, in nature, energy efficiency is key, right? This is what you could almost consider um, organisms themselves, right? The, the DNA that exists in all organisms is basically an encoded survival strategy. It's like how to be successful in a certain environment under conditions of scarcity. Um, and, you know, this is based, again, the first law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of energy, um, which all life forms follow, right? We have to follow it because we're made of energy. Um, and I guess you could say life forms do this both potentially lazily or cleverly. You know, it's, it's nice to lay around and rest and not get up and run until it's time to hunt, for instance. But there's also this clever aspect um, where animals are always trying to figure out the, uh, the smart way to catch prey, right? Or the smart way to eat or, or sleep or, or where to be. There's, there's a, um, a clever cleverness aspect to it. So again, thermodynamics, energy cannot be created, nor can it be destroyed. It is strictly finite. Life, therefore, must make efficient use of it, obviously. And the entire purpose of the world economy, in this sense of being kind of a collective socioeconomic organism, is the same thing, right? It's to increase the collective energy efficiency or the productivity of the whole. And by harnessing more energy more cleverly, humans are able to accomplish greater aims with the same level of effort, right? These are, again, that's say, saying the same thing as increasing productivity or increasing uh, the amount of energy we're harnessing or the efficiency of the way we're harnessing it. And economists call that productivity typically, but it's, it's really the reason we trade and innovate at all. It's just to increase our efficiency with the energy that we're employing. So there's a weird dynamic here with central banking because the incentive schema of central banking Again, you've got insiders that can produce new units of the currency to steal the purchasing power stored therein and externalize the cost on outsiders. What this creates is a game theoretic race to the bottom in terms of purchasing power, where each country wants to debase because it's a mechanism for uh, revenue, basically, uh, hidden revenue or invisible theft, if you will, but you don't, that no one wants to debase too quickly where it makes the scam obvious, right? Now you can't, not every country can be a Venezuela and just print into hyperinflation. Um, so it needs to be done kind of in a somewhat coordinated fashion and that uh, it's not done too quickly, not done too slowly. Um, so that's a detrimental race to the bottom, obviously. But when we look at the incentive schema of Bitcoin, there's an entirely different race to the bottom. And it's one that's very positive, very beneficial, actually. And that is Bitcoin's encouraging this race to the bottom in terms of energy prices. Um, it's also another way to describe it is like the energy buyer of last resort. So if there's no higher or better way to employ 
a certain unit of energy that is produced, then you can always just sell it into the Bitcoin network. Um, you could liken that, you could say Bitcoin something like a perpetual bounty program for cheap and renewable or renewable sources of energy. So anywhere energy is either stranded and it's expensive to transfer or it's, um, if it's cheap, right, maybe you can't sell it to the grid, it's not high enough price, whatever, the, the demand's not high enough, um, Bitcoin can just be an energy buyer for that. And it's, it's not, you know, you can drop a miner that's not connected to the internet or the grid. It can just mine uh, independently. And then you, as long as you sync that thing to the network periodically, then it's it's still useful. So you don't need to actually pipe the energy out of the location. So it's a, a bit more atomized in that respect. And again, this is a really, that's a really big deal because the world now has this direct, everyone in the world has this direct perpetual financial incentive to uncover better ways of harnessing energy, right? Innovate, uh, discover, just um, monetize stranded energy sources, bring old, uh, formerly non-economically viable energy sources online. Like there's this, there's a huge incentive, right? Because now you can monetize uh, things that just were not monetizable prior to Bitcoin. And so, and this is, if you've ever heard of the Kardashev scale, which actually quantifies uh, the level of human civilization by how much energy we are using, I think this is how humans move up the Kardashev scale, right? You need this financial incentive to drive this race to the bottom in terms of energy prices. And the other thing to remember here is the cheaper energy becomes, that's almost equivalent to saying uh, the more wealthy the world becomes because energy is the primary input to every industrial or creative process. So the, the cheaper you can make that primary input, the more economic abundance you can create on the back end, even with existing technologies, right? You just run the same processes, but you can do them, do it much cheaper as energy becomes cheaper. So in this way, I think Bitcoin could be a catalyst for like breakthroughs in energy technology and perhaps the ultimate tool for economizing human action and that we, if it does make energy cheaper, which makes the world wealthier, this is all equivalent to saying increasing uh, productivity and capital accumulation. So it's a, it's much more than just a really good money. It also has this very, very good incentive schema associated with it. Um, that I think will have positive impacts on the energy market. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> you've got fiat currency, which is a man-made tool for control. Uh, although it's commonly held just because it's widely accepted. Um, we, we've lived under a fiat regime, you know, in the US since 1913, more or less, uh, a pure fiat regime since 1971. Um, that's kind of normalized it. You know, a lot of people hold fiat currency to be the natural order of things. When you say the word money, people think it's the paper government debt note in your pocket. Um, but it's, it could anything, it couldn't be any further from the truth, basically, right? It's not natural whatsoever. Doesn't emerge in any free market, requires coercion, compulsion, violence, monopolization, etc. And 
you know, Ray's got this quote. He said, to be great, one can't compromise the uncompromisable. So my question there is, what excuse, Ray, was there ever to compromise the redeemability of dollars for gold or to so heavily dilute the value of fiat currencies over time? Um, I, I don't see how violating the private property of citizens through inflation is something we could ever consider an acceptable compromise. I mean, that what makes theft justified is the equivalent question. So uh, these machinations that have taken place in fiat currency, they were designed only to enhance the ability of bankers, bureaucrats, and politicians to expropriate people. That's all that's ever been used for. Um, and you it's given them this tool that effectively lets governments default on their debts and pass the real costs on to future generations. Uh, that's actually another good way to frame up inflation is that it's a slow motion default on government debt. Right? When they've, they've racked up enough expenses that they can't pay or right? they're running a deficit, they have to cover that deficit with debt. And then when the debt load itself becomes unserviceable, what do governments do? Well, they monetize the debt. They print money to cover the debt principal and interest expense. This is effectively using inflation to harvest purchasing power from market actors, those people saving in dollars, and using it to pay uh, outstanding government borrowing cost. Um, obviously a really bad deal. And as we said earlier, this is far from being a natural form of money. Fiat currency came to dominate the world through this long chain of causality. And this chain is rooted in a flawed system that encourages people to operate with smaller time horizons and with more of a zero sum mentality. And this idea of causality actually takes us into our next principle, which is the principle of chains of cause and effect. And Ray writes the following. I believe that everything that happens comes about because of cause and effect relationships that repeat and evolve over time, unquote. So few people realize this, actually, that it's a technological limitation of monetary metals, specifically gold, that is the main cause of the gigantic nation states we have in the world today. Let me say that again. A technological limitation of what we use as money is the reason we have these large overgrown uh, states in the world. The, the, the nation state has become the dominant institution. Uh, it may sound like Two things that aren't related, but I'll try and explain why. There's this drawback in monetary metals, which is the difficulty of assaying the value or determining the authenticity. I often relate this to the recognizability property of money. Um, this is something that gave rise to coinage, actually, that if at each transaction I have to stop and verify the quantity and quality of the gold, that is uh, diseconomizing 
right? That's a, that it's it adds friction to the process of free exchange. So what did we do? We introduced coins that had this public stamp. Initially, it was a private coinage operations, but over time they became public uh, as governments sort of took them over. This public stamp gets emblazed on the face of a coin. Usually it's got some smug emperor's face on it. And this was serving as the veracity that entrepreneurs of old could rely on. So you can just trust that the coin, uh, the issuer of the coin is what it says it is in terms of weight and, and quality and fineness. And this converts the need. So now you don't need to trust, or I'm sorry, you don't need to verify the the quality and the fineness of the metal at each transaction. Instead, you could just trust the coin issuer. So now, again, it was typically state stamped. So you're basically now inserting interpersonal trust where we had those laws of nature like physics and chemistry uh, protecting us before and our own verification. You now end up trusting an institution or an issuer. And so this is why, I mean, almost every time coinage has arisen across history, it's not long before the issuers or the rulers start to engage in the act of coin clipping, which is the an older form of, of monetary inflation, in which they would periodically gather the coins from all the citizens. They would melt them down and recast the coins, um, but they would recast them at the same face value, but they would keep some of the residual monetary metal for themselves. So basically diluting the coin, right? This is basically old school inflation. And um, similar to modern day inflation, coin clipping was a way of surreptitiously taxing the population by debasing its currency. So each time this happens, each time you're compromising the value, uh, the integrity, let's say, of money or the value storage integrity, was compromised by coin clipping or supply inflation, it's only a matter of time before the society that that money binds and unifies starts to come unglued. Uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but money is primary technology for humans, primary protocol for social cohesion. When you start to debase it, you're actually dissolving the glue that holds society to get together. Um, another way to think about that is, again, the debasement of money is a violation of private property. Private property is the number one rule in civil society. Like we settle disputes over scarce resources via property and property law rather than violence, right? That's the main rule of civil society. When you start to break that rule or twist that rule through monetary debasement, uh, society starts to become a little less civil. Now, this dynamic of debasement became even more severe when we got into the age of gold-backed currencies, uh, which led to the centralization of gold and the vaults, and then it made it much more efficient for issuers to just print new units of currency, the counterfeit currency, rather than go through the expensive and arduous act of gathering all the coins, melting them down, recasting them, etc. You could now just literally just print new units of paper, and fast forward to today, it's even easier <laughs> to expand the money supply because they don't even print the paper anymore. They're just updating a database. So this centralizing control over a money supply always has and always will lead to an expansion in wealth disparity. The gap between rich and poor will widen as a result of this. 
as the few insiders, right, rulers, politicians, central bankers, who can extract value from citizens, have everywhere and always across history given in to this temptation. It seems, based on my study of my of history, it seems to be an irresistible temptation. Like once the option is there, someone is going to take it. And eventually that that parasitism on the market economy, it leads to social unrest and often social revolt or revolution. So I think if we flip the script on this and we look at something like Bitcoin, a form, you know, it's a money that's impossible to inflate, very hard to confiscate. Um, I think it may actually, if, if, if it was the debasement of currency that was the mechanism that fed the overgrowth of the state, and now we take away that mechanism with the rise of Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin could actually and will actually shrink the state significantly over time. Um, and so I'll try to walk through this reasoning. The pro again, the problem or the expensiveness of a saying verifying monetary metals at each transaction led to state-backed coinage, as we described earlier. This gave demagogues, politicians, bankers, etc., a means to violate the trust placed in the public stamp to enrich themselves, right? So it's this is again corruption, right? The bending of a public-facing rule for private gain. That's what coin clipping is. That's what inflation is. Had a monetary technology existed then at that time that was sufficiently counterfeit and confiscation resistant like Bitcoin, then government may have never grown to its current size and level of oppression in the world. It just wouldn't have had it wouldn't have had the revenues, frankly. You could not have extracted so much from the market economy if people had had uh, a good, sound money. And if I take this a little bit further, it's my assertion that if somehow we had had a gold that we could have moved at the speed of light, that central banking would have never arisen, would have never emerged. Now, if you think about this, to say that you can move something at the speed of light is equivalent to saying that it has zero mass. So if we somehow had a gold that had no mass, um, then we wouldn't have had this economic benefit from centralizing its custody and putting the currency application on top of it. If the gold had no mass, you could custody it easy, right? It's just, it would be, if it's massless, it's basically just information. And if it's massless, you can move it at the speed of light. So why would you ever need a central custodian for something you, for just information, right? You can custody it yourself, move it at the speed of light. So if banks originated as custodians, which they did for monetary metals, then a massless money where self-custody is trivial, uh, that would obsolete the need for banks or there would have never been a need for banks in the first place. So I don't think we would have ever gotten to central banking had we had something like Bitcoin historically. And that might be, it might sound hard to believe, but it's this lack, this fundamental lack of a good trustworthy money that let lets the state flourish. Uh, 
another way of saying that is, you know, the degree to which property can be violated is the degree to which the state grows. And so if we have in Bitcoin this invention of a perfectly credible money or a really difficult form of property to violate, then perhaps this single technological innovation could render the entire central bank-backed nation-state model as anachronistic, right? In the same way that the Gutenberg printing press disrupted the medieval church. Uh, again, this is something I wrote about in the number zero on Bitcoin and, and something we'll talk about in a bit. So this is a bright prospect. <laughs> this is really this is a big, big bright orange future we often describe Bitcoin as because this idea of getting central planning out of human affairs, right? This this idea of creating decentralized planning, if you will, which is another way of saying giving power to the people, right? Empowering the individual or individuals rather to self-organize into the socioeconomic structures that best serve them rather than using coercion to corral them into systems that best serve uh, the monopolist of, of violence or money. So, and this entire phenomena of monetary inflation, it's unique to centrally planned money, right? You don't get this with commodity monies. Um, it does not, it's just a means of wealth confiscation. It does not offer any equitable benefit whatsoever. Um, and the virtually limitless power the fiat currency printing press affords the monopolist is the very cause for its existence, right? It is both the means and the ends of what I've described as, as monetary socialism. Again, socialism being the institutionalized aggression against private property. And that's what a central bank is doing, right? It's an institution that uses monetary inflation to aggress against private property. So it's monetary socialism effectively. And that's, that's what inflation is doing. It's violating or socializing property. It's uh, breaking down that number one rule of civil society, private property, as we described earlier. And the result of that, you know, as we we're, we're talking about earlier, is with open-mindedness, we talked about evolution, right? This ability of nature to keep what works and discard what doesn't this idea of institutionalizing aggression against private property is inhibiting that evolutionary impulse and it actually reverses it, right? It leads to like this, this involution is kind of the inevitable and disastrous effect of mono the monopolization of money. Um, whereas free markets are the worst, the, the, the reverse, they, Free markets are driving evolution, right? This this non-biological form of evolution we call innovation um, is facilitated by free markets. And when you when you violate the free and the free markets, which is property, right? Life, liberty, and property, then it starts to uh, reverse that process of civilization, and indeed, you know, tears tears societies apart. And that brings us to our next principle which is the principle of evolution. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. 
Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. And Ray writes the following. Evolution is the single greatest force in the universe. It is the only thing that is permanent and it drives everything, unquote. Um, Yeah, it's a pretty tremendous force. Um, I think when you consider the fact that the only thing that never changes is change, um, you realize that everything is in a constant state of either uh, evolving or or involuting or devolving. Uh, Ray actually has these two images in his book where he's got, you know, a picture of a line spiraling upward or a trajectory spiraling upward and another one spiraling downward. And you really are either in one of two states at any time, right? You're either moving towards your goal or away from your goal, for instance. Um, And, you know, the change never stops. If something is finished changing, then it's kind of finished, right? That's that's. That's what death is. You stop uh, consciously changing, at least. You just start decomposing. So, um, and as Ray, Ray has also written the following, that as I thought about evolution, I realized that it exists in other forms than life and is carried out through other transmission mechanisms than DNA. Technologies, languages, and everything else evolves, unquote. So we're back to this algorithm of evolution right if it works keep it if it does not discard it um we talked about this in the principle of open-mindedness um how it's kind of a non-cognitive 
intelligence that's intrinsic to nature and natural systems. Um, it's what evolutionary biologist Daniel Dennett says allows us to have intelligent design without a designer. There's just this very simple algorithm that propagates through different mediums, right? You could say the algorithm of evolution propagating through uh, organisms is evolution. But when you get into this uh, external domain, from our perspective, into technologies and languages, that same algorithm keeps functioning just in a different medium, right? Whether it's it's written the written word, for instance, or maybe it's some physical technology. Um, all of these things are evolving all the time, right? They're constantly changing, keeping uh, features that work, discarding older features that maybe no longer work, for instance. And this lack of, when, you know, when we look at fiat currency again, it, what's really happening is that monetary property of scarcity is what's being compromised, right? That um, when a money is not sufficiently hard to produce, it does not preserve value over time, therefore it fails as money. Uh, yet fiat currency, again, due to the, the coercion uh, and monopolization surrounding it, is able to kind of keep that, keep it on life support longer than it would otherwise exist. Um, and so again, it's you're, we're back to these anti-competitive efforts of government to to keep fiat currency uh, a thing. So, and if you remove all that artificial life support, obviously something like fiat currency just goes away. The market would not, people would not consensually use it in the marketplace. You would hold gold, you would hold Bitcoin, you'd transact in anything that um, protected your interest. And in that sense, we could say that gold is kind of like the last freely evolved money in the world. Uh, you know, it, it occurred due to natural selection, right? Spontaneous order, self-organization. Um, and fiat currency is kind of like an, an apparition of that multi-millennia old money, uh, monetary metal rather, in that it was originally just a representation for gold, right? It's just this, this paper token, this warehouse receipt, this banknote is redeemable for a certain quantity of gold. But as we've described over time, there's been kind of a rug pull, right? We, especially post 1971, we cannot redeem dollars for gold anymore. Um, and as Taleb describes this, and I, well, I guess first of all, that's a deception, right? When you rug pull the gold from the dollar, you're left with this, this representation of nothing effectively. And this is something that's haunted human progress uh, heavily since 1971. And Taleb has this, way of describing it. He says that institutions block evolution with bailouts and statism. Note that in the long term, social and economic evolution nastily takes place by surprises, discontinuities, and jumps, unquote. So you can't actually fight the tide of evolution. You can push against it. Um, but like it's it's going to happen what a, it's going to happen, right? There's going to be, it's like trying to fight change itself. You can resist it, you can bemoan it, you can um, try to delay it often successfully, but there is, that just kind of amplifies the ultimate 
change itself. Uh, and again, Taleb describes this elsewhere beautifully in his, uh, I think this is anti-fragile, he says that delayed volatility is uh, amplified and exacerbated volatility. Like you can't fight, uh, you can't prevent entropy or change. Like it's, it's got to be expressed somehow. And so if you look at it that way, that you've had all of these, all this artifice and anti-competitive infrastructure in place to keep fiat currency alive, uh, Bitcoin is maybe one of those nasty surprises, right? It's just this sudden emergence of a new technology um, that central banks can't stop, that it's immune to their, their anti-competitive uh, artifice and whatnot. And it's, it's in that way, it's kind of just like an evolutionary impulse, right? It's, Market actors have always sought something that holds value and that is resistant to theft and that affords autonomy and independence. Um, that's what gold was, but gold was limited as we've described. And that seems to be what Bitcoin is. That is the vacuum that Bitcoin is now filling. And so when we regard economies as living systems, I think we get this very interesting um, Identity, which I've, I've described earlier, I've alluded to earlier, but I'd like to dive into now is, and that is that innovation and evolution are the same thing. Um, same algorithm of evolution, just propagating through two different mediums. So both of them are adaptations to competitive forces, right? Um, the animal competing in its environment, you know, maybe the turtle's neck wasn't long enough to eat the leaves that it wanted, so its neck gets slightly longer over time. Um, it's competing with other turtles to eat off the same tree. I don't even know if turtles eat off trees, so I hope this analogy works. But it's it's that competitive force that's driving the adapt adaptation of the species, the evolution of the species. And in market environments, it's competition that's generating this information that's vitalizing innovation. You know, what do people want? What are people willing to spend money on? Um, which producer is satisfying the problem that consumers want solved the bestest, fastest, or cheapest way? Um, again, it's competition, right? It's competition among producers to satisfy those wants. It's competition among consumers to get those goods. That's, that's what's creating the pricing system. And uh, in that way, I think innovation can be considered a non-biological form of evolution. And in nature, it's, it's competition, as we said earlier about the turtle, that it's also generating that information um, that's driving evolution. So you could say, to flip the analogy, I guess, evolution then is a form of biological innovation, whereas innovation is a non-biological form of evolution. Um, again, they're both just running, it's just the same algorithm, right? If it works, keep it. If it does not work, discard it. The operative word here being works, right? Does it, does it satisfy the purpose that it is intended for? If it does, then you will continue using it or maybe you, you will even enhance it. So it better satisfies that purpose or maybe satisfies another purpose, right? This is a this is called acceptation in biology, where a certain developmental feature uh, that comes about for one purpose 
biology will actually use it for another purpose. Um, one example being the tongue, right? The tongue is this flexible adaptive muscle. It's got, uh, it can interrupt airflow and it's sensitive to, uh, poison, right? So you can taste things before you eat them to know if they're poisonous. Well, our biology exapted that flexible muscle that can interrupt airflow for speech, right? That's how we've developed this, uh, superpower we call speech and, and rationality perhaps as well. Um, so in fiat currency, you've got this technology that is completely isolated from market discipline, uh, again, through the, the walls of the legal monopoly, if you will. And that's why these fiat currencies are, the, are depreciated tremendously in both terms of value and their functionality over time. And again, this is not a surprise because any complex system, whether it's a technological network, an economy, an organism, any complex system that's isolated from the shaping competitive forces that inform it, right? You're actually getting information from the competitive environment, assimilating that into the constitution of the network or the economy or the organism. If it's not getting that feedback, then it's not going to evolve. It's going to go the other direction, right? It's going to start to soften or weaken uh, or become pathologized in some way. And Ray's got a great quote that's pertinent here, which I'll read. He writes, one of the great marvels of nature is how the whole system, which is full of individual organisms acting in their own self-interest and without understanding or guiding what's going on, can create a beautifully operating and evolving whole. While I'm not an expert at this, it seems that it's because evolution has produced A, incentives and interactions that lead to individuals pursuing their own interests and resulting in the advancement of the whole. That's what we described, how we described free markets earlier. B, the natural selection process. And C, rapid experimentation and adaptation, unquote. So that... <laughs> wonderful dynamic Ray just described, that is the heart of free market competition, right? It's the heart of adaptation and open source technology, um, all of which are comprised, uh, Bitcoin is comprised of these things, right? It's comprised of free market competition, open source adaptation. Um, and as we've seen earlier when we described uh, we looked at the market aspects of Bitcoin, that it's both a free market in and unto itself, and that you can actually, miners are competing with each other to solve this puzzle and be awarded Bitcoin every 10 minutes. There's the market for Bitcoin issuance, that is Bitcoin mining. That is a freely accessible and universalized marketplace. Um, but it's also this open source instance of digital hard money, right? So it is a market in and unto itself, but it's also serving, um, you know, it's money. So it serves the market process itself. And so in this way, I think Bitcoin fundamentally is an evolutionary leap forward for money. Now, the statement I'm about to make is very significant, I think. Um, this is asking myself the question, what is money all the way to the bottom as far as I could get? 
I arrived at the properties of money, which I have enumerated and elaborated on multiple times, right? And the reason I think Bitcoin is an evolutionary leap forward is because it has effectively perfected those properties. It has combined the divisibility, the durability, the portability, and the recognizability of pure digital information, right? Information is basically infinitely divisible. If it's custodied properly, it's infinitely durable. It can move at the speed of light. It's massless, infinitely portable, and it's pure information. So you can verify its authenticity by um, just reading it, right? Just running checks on it. That's what Bitcoin nodes do, right? They're all checking one another's work. It's combined those properties, which information perfects, and it's combined it with the absolute scarcity of time itself. And I think this combination is what makes Bitcoin the most impeccable, perhaps even the final evolution of money we will ever see. I, I, I don't see what else we, I don't see what other space is left for optimization in terms of pure monetary properties beyond Bitcoin. I don't know what it could be. It's perfected divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, and then it's combined with the absolute scarcity of time or energy. Um, you can think about that for a long time. I've been thinking about that for a long time and uh, really just highlights to me the, the essential breakthrough that, that Bitcoin is. And um, yeah, if we think about it that way, you know, we're all kind of just a node in this these vast networks of interrelationships, uh, whether it be the economy or, or you know social media. Like we're all just these little nodes that are consuming and producing information, signaling to one another constantly. Um, we're all these little biological machines, if you will, expressing our genetic code, right? Which is this form of information. We express it through action in the world. And, you know, back to kind of Ray's idea of the idea meritocracy that we were collectively best served to the degree that we can minimize the impediments to that expression, like our ego and our policies and regulations, right? The more we can self-organize, uh, the more we're actually serving the collective by honoring the interests of the individual. That makes sense. And, and this speaks to kind of the usefulness of social institutions. And, and Chomsky has this great quote. He says that institutional structures are legitimate insofar as they enhance the opportunity to freely inquire and create out of inner need. Otherwise, they are not, unquote. So when I look at the global economy, um, you have this complex system it is optimally coordinated by truthful price signals, as we described much earlier in the, the principle of radical truth. Um, it can be thought of as kind of like a human hive mind. You know, it's um, all of these individual human minds interconnected by the price signal. And that human hive mind is constituted of countless interpersonal relationships and exchanges and the movement of information, goods, services, etc., but it's really this, it's an organic bottom-up system, right? And it's 
a system that's allocating resources and risk and human time, pricing and allocating them in accordance with the prevailing configuration of consumer wants or wishes, right? So there's all of this uh, want in the world, all of this wish fulfillment, there's a certain configuration of, of things that everyone wants. And the price signal is that intermediate layer that's actually driving the adaptation of production structures to maximally satisfy consumer wants or, or consumer wishes. So it's, it's, those are the two layers and they're communicating through the price. And in that way you get like this, I don't know, this uh, global economy is kind of like a metabolism, if you will. It's, it's converting human labor into the satisfaction of human wants. And then the, the metabolism is, it has a signaling molecule in it. I'm not, I'm, I'm losing the bio, biological analogy here because I'm not sure what that would be. ATP, neurotransmitter, something. But you need this mediating component that drives the signals um, within the metabolism such that it adapts and evolves. And, you know, it's that, again, if the economy is a kind of like a collective mind, uh, it's like a macrocosm of the individual mental microcosm, uh, both evolve in this bottom up way. They're not, there was no governing body that planned the building of the human brain, at least so far as we know, <laughs> not a human one for sure. Uh, there also was not one for the global economy. And, Ray gets this, Ray gets this bottom-up paradigm, because as he, he wrote, this universal brain has evolved from the bottom-up, meaning that its lower parts are evolutionarily the oldest and top parts are the newest. So why would we expect this giant network of human minds we call the global economy, why do we think that needs to be created top down or in, you know enforced top down what why why would the individual nodes that constitute this giant network that evolved bottom up um, why would that not also lead to a bottom up emergence at the collective scale like it does it just doesn't land for me um, and so you know in a, in a pure free market environment what you're getting is this Obviously, price discovery, right? Or supply and demand meet. That's constantly moving the needle on prices. But you're also getting this form of technology discovery, which is innovation itself, like finding the best tool for the job. <clears throat> Again, there's a lot of wishes out there. People want to go faster, eat better food, whatever the thing is. Um, the way we figure out the best way to solve that problem is through free market experimentation. Um, it's not from a central planning body. Uh, it's bottom up, right? It is not top down. So, and this is why, you know, there's a saying on Wall Street, it was talked about in the principle of radical truth, that price is truth. Um, I think you could similarly say, though, that the technologies that are discovered through the free market process are a form of truth themselves, like a pragmatic truth. Um I wrote about this a bit in Masters and Slaves of Money, but uh, and the American pragmatists in the 1800s had a lot to say about the difference between you know capital T transcendent truth versus just pragmatic truths, which is uh, the usefulness of a thing. Um, so I'll read a quote here from 
from William James, he wrote, Pragmatism asks its usual question. Grant an idea or belief to be true, it says. What concrete difference will its being true make in anyone's actual life? How will the truth be realized? What experiences will be different from those which would obtain if the belief were false? What, in short, is the truth's cash value in experiential terms? Unquote. So I think what the philosopher William James is getting at here is um, we can talk about the all-encompassing, you know, theory of everything kind of truth as one form, but there's this other pragmatic form that just is what is the best tool for the job? You could even say if a tool is something that increases our fitness to reality, you could say that a price, an accurate price, is really a tool in and of itself, right? It's giving you cognitive fitness to how much available supply of a thing there is in the world relative to the prevailing demand for it, right? All that information is collapsed into the price. It's a very useful tool. And similarly, other tools, right? You could say the pragmatic truth of digging holes, for instance, or a certain kind of hole would be a certain kind of shovel, right? It's the best way we've found to solve that problem uh, at scale economically. So all that, <laughs> all of that truth discovery process in terms of prices and technologies occurring in a bottom-up free market fashion and in that sense, all regulations, all state intervention, all taxation, all inflation um, is interrupting that process of truth discovery. It's, it's a self-deception, ultimately. When you think you can pass a law to change a thing, you know, people don't follow laws, people follow incentives. So that's a self-deception. When you think you can print money to revitalize an economy, what have you done? You've just shuffled... Uh, the ownership of wealth from the hands of one group to the hands of another group. You've created no new wealth. You haven't fixed anything. You've actually just uh, really kicked the can down the road, but you've also made the problem worse for reasons we've described earlier, right? Delayed volatility is exacerbated volatility. Um, so, yeah, very, very destructive to the whole pragmatic truth discovery process. And again, if we consider that Money has always evolved on the free market, and hard money or honest money has been the norm of human history. People have chosen consensually a money that's hard to produce, one that's hard to inflate, hard to counterfeit. Yet, uh, over the past century, obviously, that's been co-opted to the extreme, where we've normalized and institutionalized currency counterfeiting in the form of the central bank. Um, so it's we've we've inverted evolution right we're inverting the free market process that drives evolution and innovation or at least innovation uh let's say and i think that's why even the father of evolution himself charles darwin would be a bitcoiner um you know to use a darwinian analogy we could say what natural selection is to gold artificial selection is to fiat currency right there's the algorithm of evolution promoted gold as a useful money uh, to people. And it was the human and government intervention 
<clears throat> the artificial selection process that promoted fiat. And so if that analogy is correct, then in the same way mankind created little designer dogs out of wolves or we created these Monsanto self-terminating seeds from naturally occurring seeds in the world, so did mankind create fiat currency from gold, right? It's a it's an involution. It's not an evolution. Um, it is not, it does not work for people, right? That's the fundamental, again, the operative word uh, in that algorithm of evolution. So Bitcoin as this unstoppable free market money that's being naturally selected for favorably in the marketplace as the fastest growing asset in history may be seen in the sense as the re-emergence of hard or honest money in the modern world. Uh, it's, a, it's a reversion to the mean, if you will, of human history uh, to the free market foundations of money through the introduction of an evolved and evolving monetary technology. Again, not only is Bitcoin better across all properties of money than gold, but it also maintains its capacity to continually evolve as an open source network. We can always add new features uh, so long as they they benefit uh, network participants on a consensus basis. And as an honest monetary technology that's emerging in real time, I think Bitcoin outcompetes other forms of money in this market-driven process of natural selection, whereas fiat currencies exists exclusively due to artificial selection, as we described earlier. And as Bitcoin is just transcending the artifices that preserve the monopolistic privileged position of fiat currency, it's forcing those monetary technologies to compete based on their own merit, right? The artifice no longer serves fiat currency in this open environment where, where Bitcoin is immune to regulation. And so in that instance, you now have Fiat currency competing with gold, competing with Bitcoin, all of them competing with each other based on their actual merits or their actual properties uh, as money. And in that, in that competition, um, I know where my money is. And ultimately, I see, you know, fiat currency is far inferior to gold. I think it will be pushed into extinction first. Gold has a, a tremendous head start on Bitcoin. It's been used for over 5,000 years. Uh, it's a timeless monetary technology at this point. I think it will, its monetary premium will persist for quite a while uh, in my estimation, but I still see Bitcoin capturing uh, the vast majority of the monetary premium in the world in the years ahead. So zooming out a little bit here, um, I think Bitcoin could also be uh, a basis or at least instrumental in a grander social evolution um, or let's say a, a socioeconomic evolution, a, a change in the way that humans self-organize. And the analogy I like to draw on here is, you know, over 500 years ago, it was Gutenberg's printing press that gave us decentralized knowledge, right? Uh, this this ultimately, this broke the church's monopoly on knowledge, uh, that the church 
via the scriptura uh, or scriptorum was able to monopolize the production of books. Um, books were expensive. They were a luxury item. This gave the church a lot of ideological influence in the world. It was the dominant institution in the world for that reason. With the invention of the printing press, uh, the price of books collapsed. The church's monopoly on knowledge was broken and ultimately led to the collapse of the medieval church as a dominant institution in the world and later the separation of church and state. So that was all from this you know, economic innovation, just made the dissemination of knowledge much cheaper. So people could become autodidacts. They could study uh, text for themselves. They didn't need the intermediary of the church. Uh, obviously, people, people in lower income strata stratas were able to obtain books that could not before and it, it led to this cognitive evolution right we, we became more literate uh on balance as, as a species and then 200 years ago we get um democracy right we get this decentralized form or this attempt at decentralized governance and it was a, it was a real success uh in the u.s it it led to the creation of the most valuable companies in the world, the most um, wealthy nation state that's ever existed, you know, the most innovation we've seen up until this point, uh, led to the major, major innovation 25 years ago, which was the internet, right? This gave us decentralized digital knowledge, right? Kind of like the printing press gave us this decentralization of analog knowledge with the, the dissemination of books the internet took that to another level, right? All of a sudden we have, you know, the proverbial library of Alexandra in our pocket, in our smartphone. And, you know, with Bitcoin now almost 14 years old, I think it's a an innovation on par with the internet, with the printing press, with democracy. Um, uh, I feel less strongly about democracy if those three, just so I'll say. But... Bitcoin gives us decentralized digital money and the implications of this, considering the implications of this is the fascinating journey of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, the great promise of this innovation is the separation of money and state, which is something that we've never had historically. The monopoly on violence has always irrigated itself. The monopoly on money in basically every society we've ever seen. Um, and I think that, you know, digital technology, it, it, it reshapes our relationship with reality and decentralization is enabling us to self-organize societies that are based more so on rules than political rulership. Uh, it, it's, it's augmenting and improving humans ability to self-organize and to to interoperate absent coercion right it makes coercion less profitable all, all these tools uh, bitcoin chief among them as a really expensive form of property to violate so i think bitcoin's kind of like if again if we zoomed out to look at this whole path bitcoin's kind of like the latest and greatest expression of this overarching trend away from centralized command and control societies. Like if you look at ancient Egypt and you've got a few feral god kings dominating everyone else, 
uh, towards a more natural, free, and self-organizing society. Uh, the closest thing we have to that is, is you know, Western liberal democracies. But I think Bitcoin takes that trajectory a step further, basically. And to try and sum up this principle of evolution uh, in a sentence, I would just say that free markets enjoy evolution and unfree markets suffer involution, right? The freedom is almost intrinsic to the evolutionary process. If you try to inhibit freedom, then you get these unintended, presumably unintended consequences that uh, that counteract the evolutionary gains um, of a civilization or a society. So we're simply better served as a species by the free market. It has this, all this bricolage of tactile inputs through entrepreneurs interacting with the real world, you know, in optionality rich environments. There were we're figuring things out on the ground, adapting on the fly, tinkering, um, constantly getting feedback from one another, calibrating each other's actions all the time. Um, and that, that's a very information-rich exploration of reality, right? That's, it's maximizing the flow of information. And uh, if you compare that <laughs> to trying to run a central plan where you're just saying everyone do these things no matter what like don't listen to feedback don't adapt just keep just follow orders right just do what you're told just do your job um this that doesn't work you get this unwavering plan and hayek makes this point brilliantly in road to serfdom he says that even if you could write the perfect central plan that you were you know had God level knowledge of a situation, you could write the plan perfectly and say, just carry out this plan. Um, it would immediately from the point of implementation start to diverge from reality because guess what? Reality is always changing. If you don't adapt to reality, then you're becoming by definition maladapted. So if you're just running a single plan, it's, you're on an inevitable course towards maladaptation. Um, and, you know, to that end or uh, in that same spirit, obviously the choice of any technology, but especially the most important technology, money, is one that is best arrived at in an uninhibited free marketplace, just like every other technology is invented, shaped by competitive forces tinkered with over time to be improved. Um, and this is all in accordance with the timeless principle behind both evolution and innovation, right? That algorithm that if it works, keep it. If it doesn't, discard it. And timeless actually brings us to our next principle, which is the principle of timelessness.